Hello and welcome to this podcast, just one of a series on the early 19th century German writer Heinrich von Kleist. My name is Sean Allen and I'm from the University of Warwick and in today's podcast I'll be talking about Kleist's novella The Earthquake in Chile with Ricardo Schmidt and Stephen Howe, both from the University of Exeter. best known of Kleist's stories, The Earthquake in Chile was first published in 1807 in a journal. It was republished in 1810 in the first volume of Heinrich von Kleist's Tales, or Erzählungen, as the volume was called. And I'm going to turn first to Stephen Howe, and perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the key points of the story. So the story centres on the relationship between two lovers, um, Josefa Astron, the only daughter of the nobleman Don Henrico Astron, and her bourgeois tutor, Geronimo Ruggera. Um, upon learning of their affair, Don Henrico um, has Geronimo dismissed from his post and then banishes Josefa to a convent. Um, nine months later, however, Josefa collapses on the steps of the cathedral during the Corpus Christi procession and gives birth to a child, Philip. Inevitably, the affair causes great scandal. Geronimo is cast into prison whilst Josefa is tried and sentenced to death. And so when the earthquake strikes, it allows the, the two of them to escape uh, and they later find one another in an idyllic valley scene um, where the survivors of the disaster come together in a spirit of universal reconciliation. And the following morning, they then decide to return to the city to attend a Thanksgiving sermon at the only cathedral that hasn't been destroyed by the earthquake. Um, and the decision backfires spectacularly when the, um, the, the, the canon who's presiding over the sermon delivers a, a hellfire sermon, interpreting um, the earthquake as an act of divine retribution for what he sees as the sins of Hieronimo and Josefa. And upon delivering his sermon, the attending crowd is effectively transformed into a baying, bloodthirsty mob, uh, and the whole scene descends into a kind of gruesome bloodbath. And so really the central question raised by the text, or rather one of the central questions raised by the text, is you know, how and why this should come to pass. So this story, of course, it was based on a real historical event, the Santiago earthquake of 1647. But of course, when people read this story, I'm sure they're also thinking about another earthquake, namely the Lisbon earthquake of 1755, which of course was an event that occurred much closer to Kleist's own lifetime, just 52 years ago. And Ricardo Schmidt, maybe you could say something about why Kleist chose to use the earthquake of Santiago rather than the much more recent earthquake of Lisbon in 1755. I think setting the earthquake a good 150 years before the time of writing enabled Kleist to portray a society uh, with quite different values. And the values in that society with regard to sexual mores are very harsh. Uh, where having uh, sex outside marriage is punishable by death for the woman. And uh, Kleist creates a lot of sympathy for the lovers because um, when this death penalty is commuted from death at the stake to death by beheading, the populace uh, is described as greatly outraged um, by this leniency. And furthermore, um, the uh, execution is uh, a public affair, 
and uh, the narrator says the pious daughters of the city invited their female friends to witness with them in sisterly companionship this spectacle about to be delivered to divine vengeance. Um, so uh, very economically, uh, the narrator here manages to pour sarcasm um, on the sadistic pleasure the virgins and matrons in the city get and thus awaken sympathy with the lovers and thus also uh, makes the reader uh, follow this line that when the lovers are uh, saved from this rather cruel punishment um, that we sort of think, ah, you know, God is on our side. Of course, the plight of the lovers in the story raises a whole range of issues. One of the questions is, of course, is are they actually rescued as a result of divine intervention? Or are they perhaps, as some characters in the story seem to believe, actually the very cause of the earthquake itself? And this, I think, opens up the very problem of interpretation in this story. In fact, one critic has said that the whole point of this story is actually the question of interpretation. But I think we can sharpen that up a little bit um, by looking at some of the 18th century discourses that this story engages with, and in particular the problem of theodicy. Um, perhaps, Steve, you could explain a little bit about what that concept actually meant. The, the question of theodicy is concerned with this question of um, the place of evil in the world and how one reconciles um, the existence of evil in the world with the idea of God's beneficence. And in the aftermath of the Lisbon earthquake, um, this became a particularly um, salient issue in um, intellectual debate amongst theologians and philosophers who began to wrestle anew with this question of divine providence and the destructive power of nature. And as I say, at the heart of this lay that age-old dilemma of how to reconcile God's omnipotence and beneficence, given the existence of physical evil. Um, and the, the traditional view associated with uh, Leibniz was this idea of the, the best of all possible worlds. What does that actually mean, the best of all possible worlds? Essentially the view that you know, whatever happens on Earth, however much violence might be present, this nonetheless remains the best of all possible worlds. That the, that the violence that, and the suffering that we experience um, is the inevitable consequence of nature's laws, either because it contributes to the greater good or because it's, um, you know, God is a kind of disinterested bystander, one who sets up the world and then leaves it to its devices without taking too much interest in the daily operations and the, the fate of passing individuals. So it's a kind of question of perspective. One person's evil is another person's good. I think so, yes. But of course this notion that however much misfortune we experience, we're nonetheless living in the best of all possible worlds, was certainly a doctrine that not everybody agreed with at the time. And I think in particular, uh, two voices uh, are particularly prominent in the debate here. One, of course, Voltaire, and the other, Rousseau. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about Voltaire's counter-arguments to Leibniz's doctrine of the best of all possible worlds. So, I mean, immediate, almost immediately following upon the, the, the earthquake, Voltaire published his, his now famous poem um, on the Lisbon disaster, in which he launched a really quite scathing attack on the traditional optimistic doctrine, this idea of living in the, the best of all possible worlds. Um, essentially, Voltaire challenges the defenders of this optimistic viewpoint to, to confront the realities of what's happened, the realities of physical evil, and not to kind of take refuge behind abstract and sophistical platitudes of this being the best of all possible world, but rather to, to actually face up to the realities of physical evil and the realities of this um, suffering on such a scale 
um, in terms of the, the death toll for the Lisbon earthquake. You know, there's, there's a range of estimates from between 10,000 and 100,000, although most put it, I think, nowadays at around 60,000. Um, so, you know, this was almost on an unprecedented scale, the level of destruction. Um, and so Voltaire essentially rejects out of hand the kind of necessary law argument, this view that, you know, the, the evil, the suffering in the world um, somehow contributes to the greater good. And he essentially, implicitly but essentially, rejects God's benevolence by stressing his omnipotence and essentially laying the blame for suffering at God's feet. Of course, these ideas were ideas that Voltaire also fleshed out in perhaps more detail even in his famous novel Candide. And while we're on the subject of Candide, that novel, of course, contains a character called Jean-Jacques, who I think by everybody's admission is a clear reference to the other philosopher of the Enlightenment at this period, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who also played a very important part, I think, in these debates. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about Rousseau's perspective on the Lisbon earthquake. Yes, I mean, Rousseau responded directly to Voltaire um, in what it's now known as his letter to Voltaire and Providence. And it was actually a private letter which Voltaire subsequently published, in which, you know, Rousseau responds to these charges against optimism. Um, and in the first instance, Rousseau accuses Voltaire of aggravating human misery by, with this, you know, deep scepticism concerning God's benevolence. Rousseau suggests that, you know, he, he will never lose faith in God's benevolence. Um, but he sees this as a question of faith, not a question of reasoning. It's, it's purely a question of personal faith. And in fact, in terms of, I mean, often the two are played off against one another, um, Voltaire and Rousseau, and um, Rousseau is seen to be this kind of quite straightforward defence of optimism, um, which is exactly how Voltaire portrays him in Candide. The, the reality is slightly more complex. Essentially what Rousseau does is that he um, denies that man can have absolute knowledge of the workings of the universe anyway. And so any attempt to try and interpret natural evil, physical evil, natural suffering, he, he denies that any of that can be um, traced back to God's intention. Rousseau's view of God is very much of this kind of absent God, the God who sets up the world as being good and then takes a step back and isn't overly concerned with you know, the, the the daily, the daily workings. So a natural disaster is simply a natural disaster, an arbitrary event of nature that's neither willed nor wanted by Absolutely. God. In Rousseau's terms, yes. And in fact, he then goes almost a step further in that he then actually focuses his attention on the kind of human element involved in the disaster. So, for example, he points in terms which actually come across now, I think, as quite callous. He points to things like the fact that they've built they have these cities built up close together, multi-storey buildings. He sees this as the root cause of most of the suffering rather than the initial natural element. So human civilization once again. Absolutely. Well, you've told us a little bit about the theories that were prevalent at the time, in particular these ideas of theodicy and Rousseau and Voltaire's critique of those theories. Perhaps you could tell us now a little bit more about how those ideas are actually exemplified in the story itself. Well, I think there's... Um... There's, there's two ways um, in which Christ quotes these particular discourses uh, and both follow, to, again, to my mind, fairly close along Rousseau's lines, certainly far more so than um, Voltaire. I think the first aspect relates to this issue that was touched upon earlier of interpretation and the efforts of those affected by the earthquake to draw these kind of causal connections to a divine purpose and to read into the earthquake some kind of divine scheme of justice. And, you know, the theme manifests itself through Kleist's kind of orchestration of individual mm -hmm. and collective response to the earthquake, and in particular um, through the responses of Hieronymo and Josefa on the one hand mm -hmm. and the canon on the other hand. 
and the fact that Hieronymus was able to see the earthquake as an instance of divine intervention, you know, as a means of saving them, whereas you know, the canon, by way of contrast, sees it as a sign of divine retribution and a kind of judgment on the moral laxity of the city. Well, of course, the process of interpretation, as you said, plays a very important role in this story, and that's one of the most important figures in arriving at an interpretation of the story is the figure of the narrator. And, Ricardo, perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about the narrator's role in guiding us through this story. The narrator is, of course, quite satirical about the society of Santiago and uh, pointing to their uh, dubious morality. And the narrator is also siding uh, with the lovers because uh, he's reporting, not just reporting, he seems to be condoning their perspective when he's talking about the unfortunate lovers saved by a miracle of heaven. Um, or when Josepha saves her child uh, and the narrator refers to the precious child which heaven had restored to her. So it seems as if the narrator encourages the reader uh, to believe uh, the lover's own interpretation of events. And by and by, some very discreet things are put in that... uh, question that kind of interpretation. Uh, There's the event of the abbess's death and she had been portrayed as a a very good person who finds uh, a very bad ending and we also know that the uh, Church of the Dominicans uh, is left standing so uh, the the Catholic uh, Church hasn't been wholly destroyed although it had been implicated in in this uh, hypocritical morality so far. So there is this tension between what the narrator says and what uh, events are being reported. And there's one particular uh, incident where the lovers are reported at uh, feeling very moved when they reflected on how much misery had to come to the world in order that they may be saved. And that's, I think, sort of a tipping point where the narrator begins to show that the lovers maybe in their rejoicing at their being saved, are becoming quite selfish. Some people have talked about Christ's narrator as being fundamentally unreliable. Do you think this is an unreliable narrator, or do you see that there is a kind of consistency throughout the narrator's perspective on the story? Not entirely unreliable, because there is a sympathy uh, with the lovers. Uh, We as readers are encouraged to be sympathetic, and yet not to condone their perspective. Um, And that is, I think, what makes the emotional force uh, for the reader, uh, that you know, you are really encouraged to identify, to experience, see the world from their perspective. And then you are led to a point where you have to realise you can't accept that perspective. I'd like to turn now to the end of the story, and in particular to that explosion of violence. I don't think anybody reading this story can ever forget how the story ends. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how that violent ending relates to these theories of theodicy that you've been talking about, Steve. Yes, I mean, as Ricardo's just been saying, the the events of the tale show how the earthquake uh, knows no ethical bounds. And, you know, it it strikes both good and evil, just and unjust. The violence is the work of blind contingency. You know, all claims to any kind of teleological morality break down when trying to interpret the, the earthquake 
or to impute to nature any kind of divine scheme of justice. And as you say, in the final scenes in the cathedral, this, this you know, sudden eruption of violence, I think, Kleist drives that point to a, a both logical and aesthetic extreme. When uh, Josepha's resolve to thank God for her rescue eventually leads to her being lynched, and these, these lynchings are also set in motion, of course, by the, 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 the crucial impetus of the canon's demonisation of the lovers and his invocation of divine retribution as opposed to divine intervention. Um, and so, with, you know, with those brutal murders that follow, which climax in the, the young child, Juan, having his brains smashed out against a pillar, the error of this mode of thought is made to play out its fullest potentialities. Um, and I think, you know, at the same time, this also leads, again, following Rousseau, to a kind of refocusing of attention away from what you might call physical evil or the, the suffering wrought by nature and towards an exploration of the the suffering that comes about through um, human modes of agency. So stop thinking about the grand metaphysical question of evil and look more closely at the social conditions under which people are living. I think so, yes. One of the things that's very striking about this story, I think, is it has a very clear tripartite structure, and I think that has a particular significance. Ricardo, perhaps you could just talk us through this. The novella begins uh, in the city uh, with uh, social violence, and uh, then a natural disaster uh, interrupts that social violence, and we have a country idyll in between, uh, an Eden kind of paradise where there's social harmony and peace. Um, it ends then again uh, with a return to the city and uh, a renewed outbreak of violence. This time uh, it's uh, not the kind of institutionalised violence, but it's uh, a lynching. Now, tripartite thinking was, of course, very common uh, in that period, but uh, it was usually uh, the tripartite thinking on the model of paradise, paradise lost, paradise regained. Now that we've got the paradise here in the middle, that means the rhythm of the story uh, goes uh, from a redemption story to, wow, we are left uh, with the ending full of violence. And um, the question is, is that all pessimism or is there nihilism or is there some humanism resolved or some humanism to be regained from uh, this kind of rhythm? There is, of course, another way of looking at the tripartite structure of this story. And I think many people of Kleist's time would have read the story and perhaps seen in it an allegory of the French Revolution. And, of course, Kleist's views are, on the French Revolution are notoriously difficult to pin down, and this is perhaps one of the few texts where we really do get some kind of in-depth insight into what he might have thought about the process of revolution. But before we do that, perhaps you could explain, Steve, uh, why it is that readers of this novella would have seen a parallel to the French Revolution. Yeah, like you say, Kleist very rarely comments directly on the revolution, but if you read his texts, I think they're, they're full of references, some more direct than others, um, some fairly oblique references to revolutionary discourse, revolutionary experience. Um, I think in, in this case, as you say, there's, there is a clear reference with regard to this three-part structure um, as a kind of reflection on the historical course of the revolution um, from this uh, the, the initial vision of a kind of um, <clears throat> ancien regime, social model, a lot of institutionalised violence, 
followed by this this middle section in the valley, and this kind of idyllic interlude, um, which has frequently been seen as a kind of reflection of the revolutionary ideals of liberty, equal, uh, liberty, equality, fraternity, uh, and then you know, the, the final scenes with the, this depiction of kind of mob violence in the in the cathedral as a reflection of the historical failure of the revolution. Of course, some people would say that this story ends on an incredibly bleak note as Don Fernando looks at the child he's adopted whose parents have been lynched by the mob. Are we right in reading this story as an extremely pessimistic commentary on the prospects of revolution? I, th- yeah, I, think, that, I think we can look at it in, in, in two ways. Um, I think on the one hand, it certainly provides a, a negative view of the revolution as it has occurred at the time that Christ's writing. Christ's writing is around 1807. Um, 1806, 1807. I think the, the point that comes out of the story, to, to my mind, is this view that um, the, the kind of revolutionary violence that's symbolised by the earthquake can't bring about a genuine change in social values, um, social mores. The the idea that you know, yes, the earthquake brings about the collapse of the physical institutions and um, the manifestations of the old regime. Um, but you know, the, the ingrained social moral values remain intact. I think that comes through in the final scenes in the cathedral, where the canon is really able to tap the kind of cultural conditioning of of the the crowd that's attending in such a way as to essentially restore the pre-existing order. And so, I think in in those terms, I think it's certainly a reflection on what's happened historically during the revolution. And I think there's also, as you say, a kind of pessimistic view of the potential of revolutionary violence as a kind of sudden overthrow of the existing order and you know essentially the view that that comes out of the text is that the force of cultural conditioning is such that a sudden upheaval a sudden outbreak of revolutionary violence isn't going to provide that lasting change so in short social structures can't change overnight absolutely i'd agree with that but nevertheless i think the ending isn't entirely bleak because it doesn't end with the lynching. It ends with Don Fernando adopting this child and his wife agreeing to it and the enigmatic uh, sentence on which it ends uh, is when Don Fernando compared Philip uh, with Juan and how he had acquired them, it uh, almost appeared to him as if he had to rejoice. Uh, what he had to rejoice about is, of course, um, the big question, but there is something to rejoice, and we've got to think about that. Well, The Earthquake in Chile is by no means the only novella by Kleist where critics are, shall we say, somewhat undecided as to how the ending should be interpreted. Thank you very much, Ricardo Schmidt and Stephen Howe.